welcome to today's episode of Ownership Matters, a podcast for homeowners in resident-owned communities, brought to you by Rock USA. I'm Paul Bradley. And I'm Mike Bullard. Mike Bullard. Well, Mike, we have a great guest today, George Mac McCarthy, longtime proponent of resident ownership, big-time investor supporter in nonprofit activities throughout the manufactured housing sector. And I'm so excited that we've got Mac on as a guest today. And all-around great guy. And all-around great guy. And really fun to watch play golf. I take your word for that one. But let me tell you (laughs) a little bit about Mac. So Dr. George Mac McCarthy is president and CEO of the Lincoln Institute of Land Policy in Cambridge, Massachusetts. The Lincoln Institute seeks to improve quality of life through the effective use, taxation, and stewardship of land. A nonprofit private operating foundation whose origins date to 1946, the Lincoln Institute researches and recommends creative approaches to land as a solution to economic, social, and environmental challenges. Before joining the Lincoln Institute in 2014, Mac directed Metropolitan Opportunity at the Ford Foundation, which sought to provide disadvantaged people better access to good jobs and other opportunities for advancement in the U.S. and developing countries around the world. Before taking that position, Mac administered a program at Ford that focused on using home ownership to build assets for low-income families in their communities. And before that, he had a distinguished career as an academic, where he worked as a senior research associate at the University of North Carolina, as professor of economics at Bard College, and numerous other institutes. Mac received a bachelor's in economics and mathematics at the University of Montana, a master's in economics at Duke, and a doctorate in economics at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. George McCarthy, Mac, great to have you on Ownership Matters. Thank you for joining us. My pleasure. It's uh, great to join you this morning. Excellent. Now, uh, listeners, we could entertain you with uh, lots of stories from Max. Uh, let me say, uh, interesting life and career. But because there's really so much substance to cover here, Mac, we better just uh, jump into it, huh? Why not? I'm ready. So, Mac, when you joined the Ford Foundation, you were looking at affordable housing strategies and you were interested in manufactured housing. Early on, I guess uh, you heard from a lot of nonprofit folks that manufactured housing was the problem, not a solution. So talk about that. These are our colleagues. I mean, these are all the people that we've come to know now. But at the time, we're, um, you know, these are people who are you know, deeply focused on affordable housing, affordable home ownership, and even rental stuff. And they're all looking at manufactured housing as part of the problem, not part of the solution. And uh, when you actually started to look at the facts, of course, even then, the facts were quite different. And, uh, you know, this whole idea of these old pre-HUD code homes that were kind of, you know, really unhealthy, unsafe, really difficult to own and heat and maintain, those are things that even by by 2000, right, they were already kind of a minor part of the share of manufactured housing that was out there, right? And people just kind of missed the point that manufactured housing had already come to a point where it was competing with site-built housing in terms of performance. And so long as, you know, as you know, as long as it was sited right, so long as we attended to the other aspects of, you know, its ownership, it could be an asset building strategy. Because, you know, in, in 2000, I had the consumer union, I, I, I hired them to do a study to tell me why it was that manufactured housing was an asset of diminishing value and why they used a blue book to estimate its value when people were thinking about buying it. And so, you know, Kevin Jewell went out and he did this extensive study and he found out that about a third of manufactured housing at the time 
was appreciating. It wasn't depreciating. And then we started to break it down and figure out what made it appreciate. And it turns out it had a lot to do with, you know, well, several external factors, like what was going on in the housing market around it, how well it was maintained, how well it was cited at first, right? But it also had a lot to do with kind of that dysfunction in the sales market, because as you know, manufactured housing was sold on the automotive model. And so people weren't getting legitimate appraisals and stuff that were kind of, you know, disciplining the transaction and making sure they're paying the right price. And so when we started to look in any particular market, you would see that the same home with this, the same exact dimensions, the same exact uh, footprint would sell as much as 20% difference in, in sales price went off the lot based on the ability of the homeowner to bargain with the dealer and based on the willingness of the dealer to bargain. And as you know, same thing happens in cars. You know, the same car might sell for very different amounts based on kind of whatever, the orientation of the buyer and the, the seller. So, um, yeah, you know, as it turns out, remember we had a, there, there was a list of the things that mattered the most for appreciation. And number one on the list was control of the land under the unit, right? And so, and number two is actually the actual performance of the local market. Because if you're in a declining local market, if other housing is declining in local market, why would you expect manufacturers to, to appreciate it was the quality of the siding and the quality of the maintenance that were kind of tied neck and neck in terms of what had the biggest bearing on appreciation over time. But, you know, the idea was that if you had interviewed everybody in the housing world at that time, I would say more than 95% of the people would have said that manufactured housing is an asset of diminishing value. And here we had that, that first study, you know, from Consumer Union coming out saying, well, gee, isn't that funny? About a third of it is appreciating. So in the last 20 plus years, has the perception of manufactured housing changed? Have we made any progress? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I would say that we've changed the narrative completely around manufactured housing. There's no two ways about it, right? And, um, you know, I mean, the community now, of it's a topic that comes up frequently in the entire affordable housing community about how precious the manufactured housing stock is as a component of the affordable housing stock. And that is almost 100% attributable to all the work that was done by Rock USA, I'm Home, Next Step, all the efforts that we made at really trying to get the actual, the true story told. What percentage of people think manufactured housing is of diminishing value? I mean, I would say there's still a minority of people that work in the nonprofit affordable housing field who still have that impression, but a small minority. But there's a lot of people kind of in the... I don't know what you would call the for-profit regulatory space who still have um, have not been able to get their minds around the idea that manufactured housing is uh, it can can almost be considered equivalent to site-built housing in terms of its long-term performance. And in particular, it's, it's folks like you know Freddie Mac, Fannie Mae, a lot of the folks out there who play such a pivotal role in making the housing market work, and they still haven't embraced fully embraced manufactured housing as, as a housing of yeah, you know, a housing of choice for lots of people. Because look, if you've seen what's gone on in rental markets over the last 10 years, who could imagine, right, trying to, to make ends meet in, in rental markets that are going up at double digit rates over the last 10 years, right? Talk about, you know, the insecurity of tenure and folks that are getting, you know, this whole proliferation of evictions and, uh, and homelessness and all that is a broader dysfunction in the market. And and still, manufactured housing is a super viable alternative there that we could be doing more with, not less, right? For sure. I mean, we're still, as an industry, the manufactured housing industry, 
at less than a third of production of new manufactured housing units than it was 23, four years ago. I mean, remarkable. Yeah, I mean, it was almost what they were they were placing almost 400,000 units a year in 1999, right? Was it 380 or something, right? Remember, they bottomed out somewhere between 40 and 50,000 a year around 2004, 2005. And now they've just built up. They just crossed 100,000 mark again, right, in the last couple of years, which means that, you know, they're still working at about a quarter of the capacity of the industry. Well, maybe not because maybe a lot of factories closed down, right? Oh, absolutely. Been mothballed and perhaps put into other uses or torn down. But uh, yeah, there's a lot of excess capacity out there. But there's still a lot of excess capacity. And you can be sure that, I mean, one of the beauties of, of producing housing in a factory is you can run three shifts a, a day if you wanted to. You could really ramp up production very, very quickly, right? So long as you can find, you know, workers and the, the supply chain for the materials are good. And then we had a problem, a hiccup there during COVID when we had a big problem there, but that's not true anymore, right? I know word from the factories across the country that I'm hearing, you know, uh, wait times are are way down. You could order a home this week and and get it on the production line within a month. All of that has washed through the system and and they're back to producing on demand, which is a good thing. But they just just the overall size of the production is just such so short of where it used to be and there's a lot of angst in the in the industry as to why that is. And part of it is comes back to public perception and, you know, uh, zoning and planning for manufactured housing, which is still, could we say, a second cousin to housing, you know, of other types? I think so. I mean, definitely, it's not a housing stock that planners and zoners are turning to to help resolve the affordable housing crisis. But it is funny because the success of New Hampshire Community Loan Fund has been palpable in, in a number of ways. But in one way that I thought was a watershed moment that we maybe haven't made enough about is the day that the appraisers decided that they no longer were going to be able to use homes in rocks, resident-owned communities, as comps for homes in investor-owned communities because they were two different markets. And the reason that was a watershed moment was because as you know, because you're in the middle of it, in New Hampshire, you guys hit a critical mass where you got enough parks that were resident-owned that people started to perceive the difference between that kind of ownership. And it was when the appraisers get it, then you know that the rest of the market has gotten it. So we know that perception can change to you know from public perception to market perception, and then it can start to actually, you know, really shift kind of not just the narrative, but the balance. And I would say that it's only right now in New Hampshire that you've that we've seen that. And part of that is, of course, because in New Hampshire, you guys treat manufactured housing as real estate as well. So the fact is that everybody that's getting a mortgage is going to get an appraisal. So they're going to need appraisers. But still, I mean, that was, I thought that was, that told me that we were on to something big, right? That you could actually change kind of the configuration of a market with enough hard work, with patience and diligence, and you know, just doing the work is getting it done. This takes us right back to the manufactured housing appreciation study at Consumer Union that you funded and helped organize, which is number one recommendation if you want your home to appreciate land ownership, and B, access to decent financing. And I would contend in terms of home maintenance and investment. If you have ownership and you have decent financing, you have a much more likelihood that people who own the home are actually going to maintain and, and invest in it. 
So these all hang together. And that's, I think, what's being demonstrated in New Hampshire and in residential communities across the country. This is a good investment if you have basic security in place and decent financing. So that study, again, pivotal. And as you said, to your work at Ford, you know, it was three years of intensive research, uh, sponsoring research and just leaning in hard to this housing market and thinking about this housing market as uh, transformable, you know, that we can, through some interventions in the marketplace, you know, improve security, improve financing. And as it turns out, both homeowners benefit as well as the region benefits with affordable housing, lenders benefit with more security. So there's a lot of benefits to be had through innovative change in the, the sector. Well, you know, I mean, uh, nobody has cracked the code on preservation of affordable housing in this country. And if you look at the different housing sectors, whether it's multifamily rental, whether it's single family, affordable single family detached, right? we're losing the battle. Every year we lose more affordable units than we gain, right? And the beauty of the rock model is that it maintains in perpetuity a stock of affordable housing that is gonna be available for working families forever, right? And that's a good thing. And it's an especially a good thing if the people who live in it now also have the prospects of being able to either sell it or hand it down as an asset of increasing value, right? So that's, you know, and I would say that as far as I'm concerned, when I've looked at all the different you know, attempts to preserve affordable housing, the only one that I've seen that is both scalable and you know, is likely to work in perpetuity is, is the resident ownership model. Mac, I want to ask you a little bit about Lois Paris. I know that you had a very important meeting with her at her home up at Lakes Region Cooperative in Belmont, New Hampshire, many years ago, and that it was really a turning point, both in your work at Ford with manufactured housing, as well as for the resident ownership movement in general. Lois was a terrific woman, and Paul sent me to meet with her early in my career here at Rocky USA to also learn the ropes about what was going on. So tell us a little bit about that important meeting and about Lois. Well, first of all, I mean, Lois herself, who was just a fire plug, she was, and, you know, she kind of reminded me of my grandmother, who was also a, a real character. But uh, the thing that, that, that struck me the most was when Lois told me, you know, she felt like overnight she went from someone that was considered to be kind of on the lower rungs of local society, right, to now being a manager of a multi-million dollar enterprise. And talk about empowerment, right? So there was that, right? And then there was also, because we talked about it and then we went out and we, and we kind of walked through the park as well. And the nature, the close nature of the people living in that community struck me because I grew up in suburban Boston, right? And I'll tell you right now, the, the character of that community in Lois's Park was so much more of a neighborhood than where I grew up in, in suburban Massachusetts, right? Where that sense of community and neighborhood spirit just really didn't exist. And the idea of, um, you know, we all talk about eyes on the street and the idea that people are kind of watching out for each other and all that, that really didn't exist where I grew up in a relatively affluent suburb, but it did exist in that park. And, and, I, and I thought, my God, so this is not just an individual who's been empowered because she's now the manager of a multi-million dollar enterprise known as this cooperative, right? But it's the entire community that got empowered. And they get empowered in multiple ways. And over the years, as I talked to Lois, she used to tell me all the time about just how much more politically active the people in the park got because they all of a sudden decided that, wait a minute, 
we don't have to be ignored. We have, we actually have rights. We have, we can make demands. We can expect the kinds of services that everybody else gets from this community. And they got political. And then, you know, I don't know, there must've been a half a dozen different people I met over the years in, in New Hampshire who had gone from being kind of, you know, whatever kind of the nameless, faceless people living in the local manufactured housing, the mobile home park, right? To being, you know, selectmen or to being, right? All of a sudden, just completely engaged and engaged in ways that really made a difference for themselves and their communities. So it was um, that whole story and that thing, when I was able to relate that internally at the Ford Foundation, the Ford Foundation was all in on manufactured housing. Susan Beersford, the president at the time, was struck by the empowerment story. She liked the idea of preserving housing, but she didn't care about the housing as much as she cared about the people. And when she she heard about that and she understood that this was kind of a, a forgotten segment that was now all of a sudden being animated in a different way and that philanthropic capital could make a difference at scale, they were all in. They gave me millions of dollars to throw at that sector because they said, oh, yeah, we see the potential of this and, and, and the kind of difference it can make. That was all New Hampshire Community Loan Fund. That was Paul. That was Julie. That was everybody that was doing the work for years, right? In relative obscurity. And, you know, what I what I have, I just had a multi-million dollar spotlight that I could put on it. Right. And that just made a made a big difference. So Paul and I were talking and he was estimating that you brought 50 million dollars or so in grants and low interest loans into this sector. And so now 20 years later, you've once again taken over the I'm Homework version 2.0. Tell us a little bit about what is going to happen with I'm Home at Lincoln Institute and what should we look for coming out of, I know there's a big meeting coming up this summer. The work that we did over that 20, 25 years in manufactured housing was really building an ecosystem. It was starting with kind of a scaled local ecosystem in New Hampshire and then growing it to a kind of a national ecosystem. And that ecosystem was kind of typified by I'm Home, which was at its heyday, had about 4,000 members, mostly homeowners, right, who looking at it as kind of a, a safe space to be able to exchange information, to learn from each other, to even mobilize campaigns around doing things like changing the rules and the protections that people got at the state level, right? And hopefully we're going to come out of that meeting in August with more fully articulated strategy, right? Because I think we all know what the goals are, right? But now we have to talk about how we get from these, whatever, audacious, ambitious goals. How do we get to, well, what are we going to do today? What are we going to do tomorrow to achieve those goals, right? Now, New Hampshire Community Loan Fund and Rock USA has been, has had absolute clarity on its own goals from the get-go. From the day I met Paul, he was targeting, I'm going to get to 50 parks. And I was there when he did the 50th park in New Hampshire, right? And then there's 100 parks. And then, you know, I'm pushing them, well, what if we get enough money to take this national? What would you do, right? And going through that whole transformation of the model from kind of the prototype model used in New Hampshire Community Loan Fund to a very different model with the CTAPs, with the certified technical assistance providers, with your own network kind of sourcing deals and you finding new ways to bring financing into the deals, right? All fabulous. And, and you were adaptive but, and you were strategic, but you always were clear about what you were trying to do. I would say that we haven't been as successful in the rest of our work in the rest of the I'm Home networks in that regard. We've been more kind of, I would say, tactical, situational, maybe a little bit, I guess what you would call opportunistic or then strategic, right? You know, so for us, I think that if we get more strategic and we start thinking about kind of 
how to move other players in the market in the right direction, like say, for example, the GSEs, right? Who are, you know, in some ways difficult to move, then maybe we can start to kind of really take what where we are and move it into kind of a, a whole nother, you know, level of performance and a level of scale. Yeah, that's great, Mac. And and for our listeners, GSEs would be the government-sponsored enterprises of Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, as uh, you would know them. So it is interesting, listeners, this continues to come back to the same basic issues that the appreciation study back in the early 2000s pointed out, right? Security of land tenure. How do you do? You have control of the land underneath your home and access to decent financing. There's a historic precedent here that that can't be ignored, and and, and it kind of speaks to the role that you know, uh, Fannie Mae in particular played in in actually creating the housing finance system in the United States, right? Because as you know, Fannie Mae was a product of the Great Depression, and the Great Depression. I mean, one of the big events that happened during the Great Depression was the the collapse of banks, right? But what the collapse of banks, what predated the collapse of banks, a lot of people don't appreciate was that in the 1920s, the way people financed a home was with a five-year mortgage that was a 50% down mortgage, and it was interest only for five years, and you rolled the mortgage every five years, the bank refinanced it. But what happened was when the banks ran out of capital in the early 30s, and they, they called people's loans, and the people couldn't roll the mortgage over they were losing their homes and they were getting evicted. They And there were millions of people that were displaced. And they, you know, they saw the Okies that were all kind of driving to California because they lost their farms, they lost their homes, right? So the, the banks at that time didn't want to lend long, right? They were lending for five years. They thought that was a long-term loan, right? Lo and behold, you know, the Homeowner Loan Corporation, the FHA come along and say, we want you to lend for 25 years. And the bank said, baloney, we're not going to lend for 25 years. And they said, well, what will it take to lend for 25 years. And they said, well, somebody has to be a guarantor. And so they created the guarantee. The FHA was the guarantor for 25-year mortgages that the banks would be willing to make. If the people who owned the homes couldn't pay their mortgages, the FHA and the good faith of the federal government would, would stand behind them, right? Turns out they didn't need the FHA because once people started to you know, buy homes with 25-year mortgages, the mortgages performed fine and everybody was fine, right? except that the banks ran out of lending capital. So what did they do? They created Fannie Mae. And what did Fannie Mae do? They bought the mortgages. They paid cash for the mortgages. They financed the mortgages by issuing bonds, right? They were like long-term bonds, 20-year bonds. But what they did was they created this whole process through which people could relend. They could make a mortgage, sell a mortgage, lend again, make a mortgage, sell a mortgage, lend again. That created the modern housing finance system that we know today, right? And that was unknown at the time. That was unknown territory. And the FHA and Fannie Mae came in and kind of, you know, they created it. Now, I don't know why they lost that creative gene, because um, what we're asking Fannie Mae uh, to do now and Freddie Mac to do now is exactly the same thing. To look at a market that's underdeveloped, that people perceive the risks to be higher than it actually is, to then create the mortgage instrument and the process through which people can begin to show how well they can perform on their loans, and then the market takes off all by itself. The FHA never lost any money until when? Oh, the Great Recession in 2007. And even then, the FHA recovered, right? So the FHA was, it was just the fact that it existed that gave people the faith that allowed that mortgage market to work, right? 
But we've seen how well people perform in the markets that you guys serve. So well put, Mac. Really, it's a national housing finance system that's needed in this market and everybody would be better off for it. So that was a great, great uh, rundown on the history of FHA and Fannie Mae and tying that out to the manufactured housing sector. Well, a little bit ago, you you made reference to uh, running into some immovable objects before in the past. And it seems to me that you've always been a big proponent of having homeowners at the table when you're going at these big challenges. And it's a philosophy that Rocky USA shares. But Tell our listeners, you know, who are mostly homeowners in resident-owned communities, what's why is that so important to you? Why is it so important to this field to have their involvement? Well, number one, I mean, it's the people in the homes that bring the meaning to all the work, right? That's why Susan Beersford, went that, that when she was a president of the Ford Foundation, she wasn't that interested in the structures themselves. But when she heard about the people and the transformation of the people and the testimony that the people could give when, uh, about how their lives had changed, that made all the difference, right? Because that's what makes it real. So for us, our credibility actually comes from the changed life stories of the people who have been affected by the work that we do. And frankly, it's what gives our lives meaning too, because why are we doing this, right? There's a lot of other things we could be doing. I could have been working on Wall Street. I could be you know, some schlub working on Wall Street, making millions of dollars. But I didn't want to do that because I wanted to do something else that mattered. And what matters are the lives of people that can be kind of improved and changed. And without them to testify to that, without them to tell their stories, everything that we do is just is theory, right? It's just ether. So, and the thing is that it's not just that they exist to tell their stories, it's that their stories are so compelling. And, you know, whether, whether it's Natividad or whether it's Lois Paris or whether it's I mean, the leaders who come out of this sector are so impressive because they speak with authority and they speak with honesty and they speak with credibility. And that's the thing that I think that's the thing that makes the difference when you talk to Congress. So, you know, when we talk about the price bill and the price bill was won by people, you know, by Congress people going and visiting people living in resident owned communities and saying, and having the same experience that I had in, in 2000, going, wait a minute, this is a mobile home? This is manufactured housing? Uh, this isn't the manufactured housing I, I've read about in, in bad novels or saw in bad movies, right? And all of a sudden, they started to understand that these are working people. These are people, teachers and nurses and people working on the front lines during COVID. This is the, the building blocks of our society. These are people that make make things work, right? And so anyway, that's what matters, right? And, you know, theorists like me can run around and say lots of things all the time, but it matters not if I can't give you a living example of someone who has actually gone through the transformation they've been able to go through with the help of organizations like Rock USA. Wow, Mac, that was great. Our listeners are going to really appreciate that. And uh, as we're winding towards the end here, there's one more question, and I'd love you to speak directly to co-op leaders, if you could. I mean, you've met with local community leaders in a wide range of programs and projects around the world in your long, storied career. Uh, is there any pieces of advice, any guidance you would give to co-op leaders who are doing the hard work at the community level, making their communities better places through their direct volunteer leadership and engagement. And then some of, as you just noted, some of them spring up and start 
advocating in their states and nationally for things that matter to them in their neighborhoods. <laughs> so uh, any words of advice as your final words here on Ownership Matters? My advice is that the co-op leaders of today are in a position to help transform the entire manufactured housing space. And they just got to get out and tell their story. And every time we get them on a stage, every time we get them in front of a state legislator, every time we get them in front of a congressperson, every time we get them in front of a town meeting, if each one of those is able to help three more communities transform to, to rocks, right? Because of their own ability to tell their story, give people the hope and the guide path to get to resident ownership, that will make a huge difference. That's how you snowball. You cascade into kind of a, a you know transformation of the field. And the best way to do that is to be able to use the cases of people who have actually done it so successfully. And you've seen now, because the success in, in New Hampshire was contagious, right? It went to Massachusetts. It went to Connecticut. It's gone to Maine. Uh, it's gone to New York, right? You've been able to kind of move out of that small kind of core of work you're able to do in New Hampshire other states are getting it. And the more you do it in one state, the more it will transform nearby states. And so we see this is like, um, it's a seed that's, that begins to kind of sprout and grow. And it only does so if the co-op owners, the resident owners and the leaders are able to get their stories out and tell their stories to people who live in other com similar communities, right? So they got to be evangelists. We want the evangelists out there, right? Step up and speak up, I think, uh, is just great. And uh, with a certain amount of pride that I report, of course, we have a new co-op in 2022 or one, Mike, in the show me state of Missouri, you know, so if it can work in the show me state, uh, it can work anywhere. And of course, we have co-ops, as you know, Mac, from uh, in every corner of the country at this point, coast to coast and in Texas. So uh, it's all good. It's all growing. And it, it wouldn't be where it's at today without your ongoing support and your, you know, just leadership in this field. So thank you for leaning into the little mobile home park sector and for sharing with our listeners some of how you look at this. There's way too much to cover in a short podcast, but it was great to have you on Ownership Matters. Thank you so much, Mac, and appreciate all you've done over the years. Well, my pleasure. And I hope to see as many uh, co-op leaders as I can in Chicago this summer. Excellent. We will put that in the show notes, uh, listeners, uh, the I'm Home uh, convening in downtown Chicago, August 24th. Thank you, Mac. Take good care. Thanks, guys. You have a great day. Thanks, Mac. Bye now. Well, Mike, that was an exciting show with George Mac McCarthy. I always enjoy listening to him and having him just talk in historical terms, in economic terms, in human terms about this sector. I think he is about as well-rounded as one can get in this business. Sure is. And I remember the first time you introduced me to Mac many years ago, it was as uh, really the pioneering academic in this field of resident ownership and how his work as an economist brought a sense of legitimacy to the work that you and others are doing in the field in the eyes of uh, the media, philanthropy, lenders, donors, et cetera, really a turning point for the work. Absolutely no question about it, Mike. You put your finger right on it. Legitimacy with a whole bunch of audiences. And listeners, I hope you got something out of the discussion about a home asset appreciation. You know, obviously, housing prices are affected by local markets, but really for homeowners in communities, security of land tenure, access to housing financing, decent housing financing, and the quality of the maintenance, not just of your home 
but also as community owners, stop and consider quality of your community. And with all of that, you have a distinct advantage and a real opportunity to build equity in your homes. And that's a really important part of this work in historical terms. That is to say, you know, this comes from a wealth building unit at the Ford Foundation. And certainly it's a big piece of what informed the work for many years at the Community Loan Fund was how do you help low and moderate income homeowners build wealth in their homes? And resident ownership is right at the heart of that in terms of security of land tenure or land ownership. So thank you listeners for joining us. Really appreciate it. Lots of stuff in the show notes for you today. But please, if you if there's something you'd like to hear on Ownership Matters, a guest you'd like us to interview, please let us know. Just email us at ownershipmatters at rockusa, that's R-O-C-U-S-A dot org. And we'd love to hear from you. Of course, you're always welcome to compliment my co-host as well, Mike Bullard. Thanks, Mike. Really great. (laughs) Great to talk to you, everybody. Bye.